Oftentimes, it's better to start with creativity to help you learn the facts. Life is too short to learn a, a list of a thousand rando words. From the campus of Stanford University, this is Schools In with your hosts, Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. Welcome to Schools In. I'm Denise Pope, Senior Lecturer with the Graduate School of Education here at Stanford. And I'm with my co-host, Dan Schwartz, who's the Dean of the Graduate School of Education. And I should mention that we are not uh, broadcasting from the studio. We are broadcasting from our homes or office due to COVID-19 protocol. And we are going to have our guest broadcasting from home or office as well. Well, Denise, it's good to see you. Dr. Silver Linings Pope. Oh, that's a good one. I'll take that. Dr. Yeah, because we're, we're, we're going to f- find a silver lining from COVID. Okay. Are you ready? <laughs> I am ready. Okay. So, so COVID led to a move towards teleeducation. And before you start hating on it, uh, how do you feel about telehealth? Oh, telehealth is, I, I actually really like telehealth. You know why? Because I don't have to get in my car, drive all the way to the doctor's office, sit and wait. And I'm thinking of one particular doctor right now who went to telehealth, <laughs> who, who, who is just notorious for running very late. Um, but telehealth, uh, she kind of got faster, right? There was, I don't know, it was more efficient. And um, I could just literally ask my questions, boom, boom, boom get in, get out. It was like a 15 minute thing. And it was so useful and so efficient. Um, and I know that a lot of people are benefiting from, from telehealth. I know, uh, quick, you know, instead of you driving, dragging a kid into the pediatrician, you could have a quick talk there too. So, um, I'm going to say I'm a fan of telehealth. Is that, uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 are you, but, is that, are you not? No, no, no. I, I was just, you know, I was trying to show that there are merits to doing some things online before you start hating on teleeducation. I know because, you know, I usually, I usually am a, Hey, I'm in person kind of person. Yeah. Yeah. I know. So what, what I'm going to propose is that uh, teleeducation, which I'm branding right now. Okay. I like ever it. Done it before. Uh, it, it's not just more efficient. It also enables you to do new things that you just couldn't do before. Whereas all your arguments are telehealth where it's more efficient. Right. Less wasted time. Yeah. Like right. I don't know. I mean, I guess you could take a picture of something and send it to your doctor and then they don't have to see. I mean, I guess that's a little different from before. There's now like a website where you could take a picture of a mole or something like that and like have it be diagnosed. Yeah. So that that seems like efficiency. There's no yeah. change. It, right. It's just okay. you don't have to be in person. All right. So you're so, going to make so, the claim that there's something even better. Different happen. Different. Okay. Different, different but of, not of better. Which, different of which 50% of the time it'll be better and 50% it'll be worse. Uh-huh. Okay. That's sort of All how right. it always, always seems to play out. No, tonight today's show is the is going to be the proof point that it, it allows you to do things that you just couldn't do before. Okay. Okay. You ready? I'm excited. Yeah. Okay. So it's my pleasure to introduce Grace Jean-Gu. She is a clinical professor and director of the Autism Intervention Clinic at Stanford University. And we're talking to her today about research on online treatments for autism. So that's where it's coming from, Denise. You'll see. Okay, I'm excited. So, so welcome, Grace. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about this. So we're going to talk about a treatment you uh, have developed for uh, children uh, with autism. And I actually, before we start, I'd, I kind of like to know the right language for referring to children. Do we say they're on the spectrum or how, what is the right way to refer 
to children who are on the spectrum? Well, this is a really important question because actually people in the autism community have different opinions about this. So if you're interacting with someone who has autism or with an autistic individual, you might actually want to ask them how they want to be referred to if this is a person who can advocate for themselves and speak for themselves. Or if you're working with their parents, you might want to ask them. Uh, We had a long tradition of uh, using um, the person first language, like a person with autism or a person on the autism spectrum um, as a way to be respectful of the person first. But a lot of people now, a lot of autistic individuals have really claimed that identity and feel like identity first is really the most respectful and validating way to refer to themselves. Ah, oh, that's so I'll use the terms interchangeably if you don't mind. I don't know. Our listeners a... will, uh, will feel like they'll find themselves um, in our conversation. Very good and very deft. And, and also just before we get into the study, can you just say what that really means? Like what it means to be on the spectrum or, or, or be a person with this autist, autism? Yeah. Now I'm tongue tied. Yeah. Yeah. I'll try to help. Um, so autism is a neurodevelopmental disability, um, a disorder that emerges in young childhood and it's diagnosed based on not like a blood test or right now we don't have a genetic test for autism or anything like that. It's diagnosed by an expert clinician who looks at symptoms. It's behavioral symptoms, like a category, you know, a class class of symptoms that qualifies someone for autism. And so there are two areas of difficulty for people with autism. One is the social reciprocity, that back and forth um, social interaction is usually difficult. And then there's another class of behaviors that's restricted, repetitive behaviors, um, insistence on sameness, maybe some self-stimulatory behaviors. And so together, the social deficits and the restricted repetitive behaviors form this syndrome that, that we call autism. And we call it a spectrum because actually no two individuals with autism are really alike. People in the field like to say, if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Mm. Maybe you've heard that before. It's the idea that some individuals have severe intellectual disability or might have um, profound um, language communication problems or severe challenging behavior. And uh, that affects their lives in in many ways. And they might need a lot of support um, just to do daily tasks and other individuals, other autistic individuals might be verbal and um, highly intelligent and um, still struggle with social interaction and um, with reading social cues or understanding jokes or maybe doing well in an interview for a, a job they would be ultimately probably very good at, but might have a trouble getting through an interview process because of their social deficits and anywhere in between. That's that's the spectrum. I see. Super so you helpful. have uh, an approach called PRT. Uh, for for providing support. Would you explain what that is? Yeah. So pivotal response treatment, we call it PRT, has been around um, for a number of decades. And it's one of the evidence-based practices that we um, know helps individuals with autism. And the basic idea, this is a behavioral treatment. It's a type of applied behavior analysis. ABA is a broad field that many people are familiar with is is one of the evidence-based treatments for autism. 
And pivotal response treatment is a type of ABA that also incorporates a lot of child interests. It's focused on motivating the child and um, you know, following the child's lead and using the child's interests to motivate them to communicate and interact. So we think that that motivation is really pivotal. Um, and the reason it's called PRT is that the idea is we're looking for behaviors that will produce a big effect on the child's development, not just teaching individual skills one at a time, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of skills that a person might need to learn, but looking for a few things that are going to make a big difference. And in, in PRT, we focus a lot on motivation. This is Schools In with Denise Pope and Dan Schwartz. We are talking today with Grace Jean-Gu about uh, individuals with uh, autism spectrum disorder, ASD, um, and what that what that means, and a little bit about this pivotal response treatment. And you do this with the young children, right, Grace? This is what age group? Yeah, so PRT can be done with any with individuals of any age. Our work um, at Stanford using PRT focuses especially on teaching parents how to deliver that treatment uh, in their natural interactions at home, and on um, delivering the treatment in in a, we have a little classroom setting where we deliver the treatment, the clinicians deliver the treatment directly with children. And those, those kids are two and three years old um, in our program at the moment, but we, um, we've studied BRT for preschoolers and um, young elementary school students. So I think, I think as this goes forward, you're going to give an example of one of those core levers or key levers that you think is a skill that opens up all other skills. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the actually, I, I want to talk a little bit more about motivation because okay. in um, for all of us, right? We what we can accomplish when we're motivated is vastly better than what we can accomplish when we are not motivated, right? But for children with autism, actually, the gap between what they can do when they're motivated and what they do when they're not motivated is even bigger than that. So motivation seems to be even more important in autism. It's a way to overcome the kind of the learned helplessness that a child can feel when their brain is made in such a way that normal everyday interactions actually result in a lot of failure and disappointment and really erode motivation. And so in the treatment, what we're trying to do is help the child feel more effective, show them that their efforts at communication or social interaction are going to pay off. And that actually increases motivation over time. And we find when we can improve motivation through, through treatment in these little micro moments, then children want to interact more. And, and many of the symptoms of autism, actually, the withdrawal is not um, a core deficit. It's actually just the result of um, situations where the child can't be effective. And when the child's more effective, then they, um, then they are more motivated. All right. So Denise, this is where you're going to hear about the technology soon. Okay. But, but before we get there, so explain what uh, happened during COVID that you, you lost the in-person. So what happened? Yeah. So we, I'll explain kind of what we used to do the treat. We had two types of treatment that were happening in our clinic 
uh, before COVID, we had parent training sessions, which were happening in the clinic. Parents would bring their children and the goal would be um, for the parent to learn how to deliver PRT directly with their child. So we'd play with the child in the clinic and coach the parents, and then they would go home and try to replicate and try to practice those skills at home. So that's our parent training program. We also had a little classroom-based program where young kids would come and their parents would drop them off and they would have a couple hours of direct treatment with a therapist. And when COVID hit, um, we had to transition everything online and the parent training transitioned online very smoothly. It's actually quite effective to... um, as many of you have probably learned, um, you know, a clinician can be on one end of the screen and a parent can have a earbud in and they can be playing with their child in, in their home and they can be doing this, these procedures with the clinician's coaching. And actually the benefit is they're learning to implement something in their own home. So if they learn to do it effectively in their home, they don't have to try to transfer that learning to an environment that matters. This is Schools In with Denise Pope and Dan Schwartz. We are talking with Grace Jong-Gu about uh, this PRT. And and Grace was just about to tell us what happened during COVID. (laughs) So the problem came with transitioning the direct care from clinicians, that classroom. We needed to find out if PRT would work being delivered online directly by clinicians. So we had a little bit of parent help, but we wanted to see how well clinicians could actually do the treatment with the children directly via the screen. And we were surprised to find that the the online format actually brought a lot of benefits for the learning. Um, And I'm happy to go into those uh, in, in a sec. Yeah, no, okay. no, I'm, on this, I'm on I'm on that to my feet because do you have now. to do you have now. to prove that it's not just efficiency, but it's different and 50% of the time better. Because that's how Dan <laughs> led into this. That's right. Go for it. Go for it, Grace. Well, let me give an example. So, um, the one of the things that we uh, benefit from in the online environment is a practically unlimited library of toys and images and resources. So in the clinic, you know, imagine in the clinic, if a child is really interested in dinosaurs, we are trying to find as, you know, gather up as many dinosaurs and um, different kinds of dinosaurs, but our ability to source these dinosaurs, you know, on a Monday morning that when we discover that a child is really interested in dinosaurs is sort of limited, but Online, if we have a child who's really interested in dinosaurs, I have a practically unlimited ability to show him different kinds of dinosaurs. So if I want to teach him how to talk about big and small, or I want to teach him his colors, or I want to teach him to talk about, you know, pointy spikes and my dinosaur terminology is going (laughs) to, my my lack of expertise is going to show here. But, (laughs) but the point is that I have at my fingertips, natural reinforcers, natural rewards that are related to a child's interest that I can deliver really, you know, within seconds. And I'll give you another example. Um, A child we were working with um, really loved airports. And this was a time when nobody was going to airports anyway, but um, our clinicians were able to teach him all sorts of conversational skills because he could, he could tell the clinician um, what he wanted her to do. 
And then she could go and she could drop off her bag at, you know, I'm doing air quotes here. You know, he could, she could drop off her bag at the baggage claim, you know, at the baggage, um, drop off. She could stand in the security line with a virtual background behind her. He could say, you know, now it's time to get on the airplane. And then she could put herself in front of a picture of seats on an airplane and he could tell her, um, you know, move to the back of the plane and she could zoom in on the image. And so really was a great way to teach um, a lot of complex social communication skills. And these are the core skills that children with autism need to practice, but using their interests, which are really at our fingertips when we're online. So I've, I've heard that online avatars you know, where you have a character on the screen has been especially appealing to children that are on the spectrum. Uh, this, I hadn't thought of this, that another affordance of the technology is infinite content. Yeah. Right. Just infinite customizable content, you know, when, when put in the hands of a, a, a very good clinician. And it, yes. it, it, am I right that it's not just the language that you're after here, like that he knows the words for baggage or airplane or whatever. It's trying to get the conversation going. Is that right, Grace? Yeah, exactly. So what we're practicing is having the child explain exactly what they're thinking or what they want, and then having the clinician be able to reward them or, or um, connect that with a, with a consequence that the kid is going to feel good about. Because in autism, what happens is sometimes kids, when they try to communicate, doesn't work. People don't understand them. And so what we're doing in this case is we're setting them up for success. We're helping them explain exactly what it is that they are thinking, using their interests to, as motivation, and then they get the reward when they do it well. This is Schools In with Denise Pope and Dan Schwartz. We will have more with Grace Jong-Gu uh, talking about uh, ASD and autism and this new way that technology has been helping with the study next on SiriusXM Business Radio Channel 132. Welcome back to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are talking with Grace Jean-Gu, uh, who works with kids who are um, autistic and on the spectrum and has developed some pretty cool techniques and technology to help them. So, so this is the, a key lever is to motivate the kids to communicate. Is that, is that sort of what's, and it, it, you're not motivating them to be social. You're motivating them to communicate, which is, mm. which is different. Is that right? Yeah, that is it. That is important. Um, so I have two thoughts on, on that question. One is that um, communication is really key for pro positive prognosis in autism. And so communication is one part of social interaction, but we focus on communication in young children because it um, is key for positive prognosis long-term. It helps avoid challenging behaviors um, and it's going to help them make friends and develop social relationships. So the reason to focus on communication as like the sort of first aspect of social interaction is because it helps with, with everything else. But yeah. you asked also about the, the motivation part and what we're trying to do in a, in a therapy context is make the moment that we spend with a child in therapy, so exciting and motivating and effective that then the child will seek out other opportunities 
to communicate and interact with people in the future. So if we have a session and a child is getting more and more frustrated, the longer we work with them, we've really failed. If we have a session where the child is feeling more and more confident, more like they can do it, like they like learning, then we've really succeeded. And so that's the sort of secret sauce is that we're trying to, with our minute moment to moment interactions with a child, we're trying to get them increasingly motivated to interact. And that's why we think focusing on communication actually helps motivate children to interact socially because they learn that interacting with people is really fun and it's effective and I get what I want and I have a good time. And then they seek those opportunities out later. It's not that different from, from the classroom. I mean, we're, we're after a very similar thing. We want it to be enjoyable. We want it to feel like it's fun. We want them to see the usefulness of it. Um, the difference is we don't necessarily reward them with the, these pictures, but certainly teachers who, who try to differentiate for young kids, try to, um, come up with topics that are relevant and meet their interests. So there is a, there is a nice overlap there. I'm so glad you mentioned that. One of the things that's different in autism is that the praise and social, um, positive social feedback from a teacher or a parent or a therapist might not at first be quite as meaningful to a child with autism as it would be to a typically developing child. So in a classroom setting, a lot of times the teacher is really rewarding a child's effort through their own enthusiasm and praise and, um, you know, the social rewards. And in autism, we want that to ultimately work, but we sometimes have to supplement that kind of reward at first with more tangible things that are focused on a child's interests so that they get that pairing between the, the social praise and enthusiasm from the person they're interacting with, plus seeing a picture of something they love or receiving, you know, access to a toy or getting to do an activity that they love to do. And that's how we get that motivation for social interaction long-term. Do you have outcome data that says whether this generalizes? So I could imagine that you would motivate a child to talk about the airport, uh, but then in any other situation, the child may not think that speaking will lead to the same kind of reaction of the environment. It's like airport specific. Is that what yeah, you're saying? Yeah. I mean, this has yeah. always been, the, this has always been the problem with, uh, with sort of behavioral training. It, it tends to be quite specific, mm. you know? Absolutely. So the type of behavioral training that was developed in the sixties and seventies, the kind of discrete trial training, that's really focused on, um, you know, very narrow goals and, um, practice in a very structured environment did have these kinds of concerns of generalization. The field has really evolved a lot now where a lot of the behavioral treatments that are done are classified as naturalistic developmental behavioral interventions, which include generalization as part of the plan from the beginning. And so if we are sure to practice in natural environments and introduce a a lot of different kinds of examples and use natural consequences. Um, you know, it's not, it's not an M and M for good talking anymore. It's, um, you know, the kinds of things like dinosaurs and, and airports and things the kids are interested in. Then we do see much better generalization. This is schools in with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are speaking with Grace Jean-Gu about kids with autism and interventions that work particularly, uh, with the aid of technology. So are you going to run the study where they, uh, one, one group of kids 
gets the technology uh, supported training and the other others don't. Oh, that's a great idea. We, you know, honestly, as soon as we could get these kids back into the classroom, we, we jumped at the opportunity and we brought them back in. But I think the future is probably a hybrid model where we can do um, some of our parent training work and some of our direct service with children um, online. And um, when we, well, when we can, need to bring I mean, them in, could, in person. You could bring them into the room and use an iPad. Yeah. That work where the iPad starts showing all these you know, different, different things about an airport. You've got, look at Dan, Dan's totally excited to run this study. Um, <laughs> can I, I want to take this and make it a little bit broader because I know that we have teachers and parents listening. Um, as you think about kids um, on the spectrum and maybe not just preschoolers, but all the way up, what are some nice tips given what you know then um, for educators and parents to, to use? Yeah. And I think this applies whether you're trying to uh, interact with a kid online or if you're interacting with them in person, the key is going to be to find what the child is interested in and figure out, is there any way that you can teach what you want to teach in the context of the thing they're interested in? I was in a school um, a couple of years ago and a teacher did a great, um, made a great, really quick modification um, to motivate her kids to practice writing. She was, um, she was wanted them to finish their writing task before they could go out to recess. So she decided, Oh, I'm just going to have them write down a sentence about what you want to do at recess. And if everything was spelled correctly and the punctuation was in the proper place, then the kid got to go out to recess faster. And this teacher also, she was really brilliant. She would make uh, math problems, the password to the computer that the kids could use on their free time. And so, oh. or spelling words, you know, so the better you remembered your spelling words or the better you calculated your math um, equation, the quicker you could access that computer's reward. So the tip, the main uh, takeaway is anything the child is interested in, figure out how you can teach what you want to teach um, in the context of that interest. And if you're a parent and you are wondering if you if your child may be on the spectrum, what, what's the best thing to do at that point? Yeah, um, it's a good thing to talk to your pediatrician. Um, and um, but but if you have a pediatrician who um, isn't listening, then keep talking to, um, you know, look for a developmental behavioral pediatrician or, um, a lot of States have, um, an early intervention, like early start or, um, like a birth to three system that you can, um, receive screening through, um, and, uh, school districts as well can, can help with evaluations, um, to, to get some help. And it's never too late, right? I, I'm saying this, I have a friend whose child was just diagnosed in college um, and we kind of always knew something was going on maybe, but um, uh, he was actually pretty happy to get that diagnosis because it sort of explained what was going on in his world. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we know that early diagnosis and early intervention is key, but we're talking about children who are more impaired usually when we say that. So what's happening with teens and young adults and 
who are getting diagnosed is sometimes they've been able to function pretty well and, um, you know, have maybe wondered what's going on, but haven't gotten the diagnosis. And um, luckily, as as teens and as adults, we still can learn and all of us can improve and, and figure out how to make our lives better. So um, the information is useful at, at any time of life. Such a good show. Thank you, Grace. Thank you so much for being here. And thank all of you for listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope on SiriusXM Business Radio Channel 132. If you missed any of this episode, listen anytime on demand with the SXM app and anywhere you listen to podcasts.